Um, so the Chad Mini Fellowship Series we do annually, we highlight a particular discipline, um, and the idea is to identify important or common conditions that all of us might see, particularly in primary care, but across pediatrics, uh, that we may not have thought about since residency or medical school to get uh, state-of-the-art updates from our specialists. The goals will be, in addition to our e-consults and our enhanced referrals, the goals are to um, be able to provide more consistent care, more care in primary care and more consistent care in primary care, and facilitate referrals back and forth between specialty and primary care by knowing that we're on the same page in terms of what the current state-of-the-art is and what the uh, best practices are in creating some common best practices. So, so Dr. Lim Liberty, Francis has stepped up to kick off our um, endocrine mini-fellowship with the thyroid, the maybe not the master gland, but one of the top glands. A native of Chicago, <clears throat> a native of Chicago, Francis received her bachelor's from the University of Chicago and um, doctorate of medicine from Rush University Medical College. She received numerous awards as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. I hope everyone has their little clickers because in true Chicago fashion, she's going to hope that you'll vote early and often um, <clears throat> with the response center. She, she made her way to the West Coast to the Children's Hospital and Research Center of Oakland for residency and chief resident year, but got back home to the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago for Pediatric Endocrinology Fellowship. Somehow we swung her to the East Coast, uh, subsequent to fellowship, and she's been with us now for the past uh, two and a half years. Uh, of note, in between, um, in between undergrad and medical school, she served for AmeriCorps as well for a year. So uh, Francis is going to, I think, present to this audience for the first time and should not be intimidated. Welcome, Dr. Lim Liberty. Hey, good morning. I hope I can speak loud enough because I don't really want to stand behind the podium the whole time. Um, You're going to want to grab this because you are on video. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll do a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Okay. In case you walk because All right. they are watching. Great. So for those of you who know me, I love Wonder Woman um, and I'm a huge Wonder Woman fan. So the objectives today... Actually, two weeks ago, I, I completely revamped my Grand Rounds and changed it so that way it would be case-based and with audience participation. Um, so my hope is that by the end of this presentation, we'll have an understanding of how thyroid hormone is made, that we'll understand the hypothalamus-pituitary-thyroid axis, that we will know when additional thyroid testing is required and when we, can, when we need to treat versus clinically manage or clinically follow. So these are the different cases or um, uh, principles that I plan on highlighting in the presentation today, and hopefully we'll have time at the end for some questions. Please be kind to me. <laughs> I've been up since four with a sick baby. <laughs> okay, quick review here from um, most of you probably are familiar with this, oops, with this axis here. My pointer is kind of working, but not. Um, so I'm going to try using this arrow here. Okay. So the hypothalamus releases thyrotropin-releasing hormone, which is sent to the anterior pituitary and talks to the thyrotrophs and have the thyrotrophs then release um, TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone, which then acts upon the thyroid gland and causes the thyroid gland to make T4 and T3, which are two of the thyroid hormones, which then act at the target tissues here. And then there's negative feedback back to the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. So it all happens in a uh, negative feedback loop. So this is a complicated slide, but I know you guys are really interested in learning how thyroid hormone is made. So I put it in here because I find it very fascinating. So it starts with iodide. And iodide is um, absorbed from the small intestines, and it is then... Uh, oops, ah, taken in by the thyroid follicular cells by the sodium iodide symporter, concentrates within the follicular cell and gets flicked in to the colloid by the transporter called pendrin. The iodide is then oxidized to iodine, 
by, um, well, this enzyme is now called Duox2, which releases hydrogen peroxide. TPO, which is um, uh, thyroid peroxidase, is the enzyme that then pastes the iodine onto thyroglobulin. So thyroglobulin lives in the colloid, and the thyroglobulin provides the backbone for the iodine to then attach to and make thyroid hormone. So TPO pastes the iodine onto these, um, this backbone, which is also called tyrosine residues. And once they are on the thyroglobulin, they couple with each other and make T4 or T3. And just to remind you, T4 is called T4 because there are four iodine molecules attached, and T3 has three iodine molecules attached. And once T4 and T3 are made, this huge molecule of thyroglobulin and T3 and T4 get transported back into the follicular cell. T4 and T3 are, um, are cleaved from thyroglobulin and then released back into the bloodstream. So T4 and T3 are the um, two thyroid hormone uh, molecules that are made in or that are released from the thyroid gland, but actually 80% of the T3 that's in the circulating bloodstream um, is created from the extrathyroidal conversion of T4 to T3 in any of these tissues. So diiodinases convert T4 to T3, particularly D1 and D2, um, and they're, the diiodinases are ubiquitous in the body. Reverse T3 and T2 are inactive thyroid hormone molecules. All right, so first case here. Your office receives a newborn screen with results that are flagged, that the TSH is elevated. And you can see the norm here is less than 15. So Feel free to shout it out. What are some questions we need to ask ourselves when we see a newborn screen that comes back that's flagged this way? Is mom on thyroid hormone? Yes, I have some positive reinforcement here. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fish. <laughs> All right, Kathy asked a good question here. I don't know. I, I can't catch. What day of life was the newborn screen drawn? So that's an important question, and usually it's drawn at, after 24 hours. Was the baby full term? Did the baby have a traumatic delivery? Does mom have thyroid disease? And there are obviously other questions that I like to ask, but these are kind of some important questions that we need to think about when we have that newborn screen in front of us. So 30 to 60 minutes after a baby is born, TSH rises in response to the baby being cold. And when you have that rise, it increases the production of T4 and T3. You have an increase in diiodinase 1, so T4 is shunted to make T3, which is the active form of thyroid hormone. And there's a decrease in diiodinase 3, and therefore there is less of the T4 being converted to reverse T3. And usually by 24 to 36 hours, the TSH starts to decline, and usually by 4 to 5 weeks, it's pretty much calmed down. This is typical in full-term babies. Preterm babies is a slightly different story. So this is where you take out your clickers. You have the newborn screen that's 18. What do you do next? I'll give you three seconds. <laughs> okay. All right, I hope this works. All right. <laughs> Yes, so I would also repeat the TSH and free T4. So congenital hypothyroidism, um, these are kind of the classic signs and symptoms that people think about when they think of congenital hypothyroidism. I 
hardly ever see any major side effects from congenital hypothyroidism because of our newborn screen, and we all start thyroid hormone pretty um, immediately after we get confirmation that the child has congenital hypothyroidism. What is the most common cause of congenital hypothyroidism? This is where you use your clickers again. Testing. Is this on? Okay, great. All right. Oh, nice, interesting breakdown here. <laughs> All right, so the answer is B, thyroid dysgenesis. 85% of congenital hypothyroidism is caused by thyroid dysgenesis. So that could mean being born without a thyroid gland, having a topic thyroid gland, or having a small thyroid gland. So the treatment, as we all know, is Synthroid. And if you talk to an endocrinologist, they prefer, we prefer the brand name Synthroid because of the consistent bioavailability. We typically like to start it within two weeks of life. Why? What is the most important thing that we think about when we start thyroid hormone in a, in a baby? Brain development, absolutely. So. Thyroid hormone is essential for the first two to three years of life in neuronal myelination. We also prefer tablets, so we don't recommend liquid form. Um, again, because the bioavailability in liquid decreases as it's out. Um, and the recommendation is typically to crush it and mix it with a small amount of expressed breast milk or any form of or formula, or even a little bit of water, and it should not be mixed with soy formula. We follow these kids pretty frequently in that first year of life because, as you may or may not know, um, thyroid hormone is technically best absorbed on an empty stomach, but you're not going to get a one-month-old on an empty stomach. And so we follow thyroid levels frequently in order to adjust our medication appropriately. All right, next case. So you have a three-and-a-half-week-old baby, normal birth weight, but has not been gaining weight, not feeding well, and is more sleepy. And though he passes newborn screen, one of the tests that you want to send are thyroid function tests. You get a free T4 that's 2.1, and these are the, the reference ranges here, and a TSH of 8. What is going on? <laughs> How do you interpret these results? Are those ranges, the, the normals, are those for babies that age? Good question, Nina. <laughs> she gets a fish for that. You do get a fish for that. I won't, I won't embarrass myself by throwing it, but if you want to come down, help yourself. <laughs> okay. So another interesting breakdown here. Um, he has normal labs, so... I don't know if this came out very well. Um, the reference ranges that are listed in EPIC, I believe, are pretty much tailored to age. I think the TSH is. Um, but keep in mind that depending on how old you are, there are specific reference ranges for specific age groups. All right. We get this. Very, 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 very often. So I think this deserves some talking about. All right, so you have a patient who is screened for thyroid disease because your patient is obese. She has a normal free T4 and a mildly increased TSH of 7.2. There is no goiter on exam. So how would we manage this? Diet and exercise. <laughs> you get a fish. <laughs> All 
right, so we're going to look a little bit at um, some studies where TSH or thyroid function tests were um, studied among obese and normal weight populations. And you could see here that in this study, they found that those who were obese did have a wide range of TSH levels, particularly elevated levels, compared to the controls who are normal weight. When that obese population um, lost weight, this is what happened to their TSH levels. This study looked at 109 obese patients who had abnormal thyroid function tests. The TSH and the free T3s were elevated in this population, or statistically significant. 43 of these children who were obese were reevaluated after intensive lifestyle intervention, and their thyroid hormone concentrations normalized in more than half of these patients. And this study here looked at 246 obese patients and 71 lean patients. Again, their TSH and free T3s were significantly um, abnormal compared to the normal weight population. There was substantial weight loss in 49 of the obese children, and they had significant um, decrease in their TSH and free T3s. Those who did not lose weight had no significant changes in their TFTs. So why do obese patients have these abnormal thyroid function tests? Um, there are some theories out there. So one of the theories is that it's possibly a defense mechanism. So if you increase T3 and free T3, you increase your metabolism. Um, another theory is that um, so fat cells have TSH and thyroid hormone receptors. It's possibly reduced in obesity, and so you end up having some kind of a TSH resistance, and so your TSH increases. There's also thoughts that leptin, which comes from um, fat cells, directly um, affects the HPT axis, causing increased TRH and thus increased TSH. Um, the TSH, on, the TSH receptors on the adipocytes um, then also increase more leptin, so you have kind of this constant um, feedback. And then another really interesting theory is that obesity is an inflammatory state and that you have increased cytokines, which inhibit that sodium iodide symporter that we looked at several slides back, which decreases iodide uptake. Um, and so as a result, you have a compensatory rise in TSH. So going back to our patient, would you treat that patient? <laughs> would you treat that patient with thyroid hormone? All set? <laughs> So the majority said no, and several said, I need more information, which is legitimate. So if this patient was referred to me, I would typically get TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies. And if they were negative, I would say, we're definitely not treating. If they were positive, I would consider treating. So I kind of tricked you. Um, all right, this is another common case that we see. You're seeing a new patient, and the family states that this patient has had a lump in the front of her neck for several months. So this is a new patient. What are some key questions that we need to ask? Have they seen TD Hemar? for us. Is it painful? Is it painful? Symptoms, excellent. What do they mean by the front of the neck? Yes, where is this lump? Are they overweight? Are they overweight? Um, so also kind of dovetailing off of what Julie... Sorry? What's that? How old is this kid? Teenager. Okay. <laughs> so kind of going off of what Julie said, though, it is important to find out if they have had any kind of radiation history um, or if they've had any um, history of cancer. So on exam, you note a large, symmetric, non-tender thyroid. The labs, the free T4 and TSH are normal and is noted to have positive TPO antibodies. So there's really no right or wrong answer. This is more of, in your practice, what is your next step? What would you do? 
Looks like there's a pretty good split. Majority says thyroid ultrasound, which is often what happens. They end up with a thyroid ultrasound and then end up coming to see us. I would argue C is also very, um, C is probably what I would do um, because you can have a youth thyroid goiter and you wouldn't really provide treatment. I'm not going to provide treatment. And the exam was otherwise reassuring despite having an enlarged thyroid gland. All right, since I guessed most of you would get a thyroid ultrasound, um, these are typically kind of the buzzwords that come up on a thyroid ultrasound in somebody who has, who's youth thyroid but has autoimmune um, propensity to develop hypothyroidism. And I think this, some of these buzzwords scare people, and so then they end up coming to see me. These, these words here are what scare me. So the ultrasound is read as diffusely enlarged, heterogeneous echo texture with three very small hypoechoic <coughs> nodules, about two millimeters each. So would you refer at this point, or would you continue to provide reassurance? Just to plug, I would e-consult you. Which <laughs> So this is pretty, like an even split almost. Um, so half would refer and half wouldn't. And I would say if you refer, I would probably be telling them what you would be telling them if you didn't refer, which is I'm not concerned. Those nodules are very, very tiny. There's no way anyone could biopsy them. Um, but now we're stuck with following a thyroid ultrasound. Well, that kind of stinks. <laughs> so, oops. A nodule is generally needs to be greater than a centimeter for us to be able to biopsy them. And um, any non-palpable nodules um, or symmetric enlargement of the thyroid gland with normal labs otherwise is pretty reassuring. So if you're uncertain, I would say refer them over, but let us decide if we need a thyroid ultrasound. Because if you get the thyroid ultrasound and you find all these small nodules, now we have to follow them, and they're unlikely, I mean, they're likely to be nothing. Okay. So you're seeing an eight-and-a-half-year-old. This is her growth chart. She's seen multiple providers in your practice. This is the first time you are seeing her, and this is a patient that I saw last year, actually. Her TSH was 1,536, and her free T4 was less than 0.4. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the most common cause of hypothyroidism is autoimmune, which is also called Hashimoto's thyroiditis or chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis. In this girl's case that I just presented, I did not feel a thyroid gland, and that's because she was so far along that her thyroid gland was probably just burnt out. But they can present with a goiter. And typically when you feel it, we describe it as bosselated, so it's kind of like a, a pebbly feeling throughout. There are increased incidents of developing autoimmune hypothyroidism in certain syndromes. What are they? Diabetes. I didn't actually write type 1 diabetes, but yes. Um, so Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, Kleinfelter, Noonan. And if you have an elevated TPO versus thyroglobulin, that generally confers a greater risk to developing overt hypothyroidism. So these are the typical clinical symptoms. I won't go through them all because we all know what they are. Typically, school performance is not affected. Other important features include um, delayed bone age, growth failure, increased risk of skiffy, and precocious puberty. Does anyone know how precocious puberty occurs in someone who has severe hypothyroidism? Carlin, <laughs> 
Did someone say that TSH has the same alpha receptors as FSH and LH? <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. So you have crossover receptors. The treatment is thyroid hormone. Um, after treatment is started, their TPO antibodies do decrease, but they typically remain elevated, so we don't actually follow TPO antibodies. And if it's severe enough, you need to start at a low, low dose. So that girl that I just presented, I started her at 12 and a half, and I went up very, very slowly. And the reason is there are case reports out there that report um, increased ICP as a side effect of starting um, levothyroxine at too high of a dose. Again, we do not recommend a liquid formulation. Thyroid hormone has a half-life of one week, so to reach steady state, steady state, it takes a long time. So if you're checking that dose, you need to repeat the levels in four to six weeks in order to make sure that it's at steady state. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I've had a lot of pediatricians ask me, can I treat this in my office? So if you feel comfortable doing that, just, just know some of these important issues. And we typically follow, you know, in their childhood, adolescent years, every six months to make sure they're growing and developing normally and that they're taking their medicine. So this patient, I started her on thyroid hormone right here, and you can see she grew. These boxes here are her bone ages. So her bone age was very, very, very delayed. Um, this time frame is only about four months apart, and so... Um, I anticipate this bone age is going to catch up rapidly. She is not going to reach her genetic height potential because she was so severely hypothyroid and had such um, profound growth retardation. And I make sure to tell families that so they understand that um, she's going to be short. All right, so... Next case, you're seeing a patient with excessive weight gain and decide to obtain thyroid levels. The TSH is 6.3 and the free T4 is normal. You obtain TPO antibodies, which are positive, and a repeat TSH, which has come down to 5.8 but still elevated. Would you treat this? So it looks like the majority says no. So she has what we call uh, subclinical hypothyroidism. So that's when you have a TSH that's elevated but below 10, uh, normal free T4 or T4. Keep in mind that you can have... So when we grab levels, we are grabbing one point in time. But thyroid hormone levels, as we know, are dynamic because there's constant communication between the pituitary and hypothalamus. So as a result, you can, at one point in time, get a TSH that's somewhere between 6 and 15, which can be a normal, appropriate response to a transient decline in thyroid hormone levels. And it's generally benign. So just a brief review on the natural history of subclinical hypothyroidism. Um, this meta-analysis looked at several observational studies, 250 total kids with subclinical hypothyroidism with an average of 4.3 years of follow-up. And the number of patients who went from subclinical to overt hypothyroidism, who remained subclinical, and who became euthyroid was pretty much split a third, a third, a third. When when you actually kind of tease out, though, these different studies, so this, these top studies here use a TSH cutoff of 20, and this, these studies use a TSH cutoff of 12. And because of the different cutoffs, the actual um, numbers of who ended up becoming overtly hypothyroid did change versus those who remained subclinical and those who became <laughs> euthyroid. Um, but overall, the majority still ended up not becoming overtly hypothyroid. And this was a five-year perspective study that asked the question, does it matter 
when you present what your levels are, does that somehow predict if you will end up becoming overtly hypothyroid? They looked at, they split the, the um, kids up into two groups. So the first group here was euthyroid at diagnosis, and only 12% became overtly hypothyroid, and the majority remained euthyroid. Um, this group here had subclinical hypothyroidism, 30% ended up overtly hypothyroid, and 40% ended up normalizing their levels. And overall, if you looked at the whole population, the majority were euthyroid by the end of follow-up. So um, there are a lot of other questions that come up when you think of subclinical hypothyroidism. Does it affect your neuropsychological development? All of these studies here found that if you, were, if you had subclinical hypothyroidism, it did not affect IQ scores. These two studies um, thought maybe there was some poor performance in those um, studies that measured attention. But look at how few cases um, or how small these studies were. Another question is, does subclinical hypothyroidism affect growth? And the answer is no. Um, does subclinical hypothyroidism cause elevated BMI? Well, I think, looking, thinking back to what we discussed earlier, um, we do know there's a higher prevalence in the obese, but the TSH resolves with weight loss. And even giving thyroid hormone is associated with little or minimal BMI change. Possibly subclinical hypothyroidism could um, be correlated with elevated cholesterol levels. And this cross-sectional study here did find there was increased risk of hypertension um, in those with elevated TSH levels in children, but it did not pan out in adolescents. I don't know why. So in summary, um, a TSH that's mildly elevated and obese is likely because of the obesity. Most children do not have symptoms of hypothyroidism, of overt hypothyroidism, because the free T4s are normal. In studies of, in older kids um, did not find any clear association between subclinical hypothyroidism and impaired neuropsychological development. It was not associated with adverse growth effects, but possibly with cardiovascular parameters. So, next case. You have a two-and-a-half-year-old with trisomy 21 who's due for the annual TSH and celiac screen. The TSH is 6.7, and the free T4 is normal. Would you treat this? Majority says no. So we do know that there's a higher prevalence of thyroid disease in Down syndrome. And subclinical hypothyroidism is, there's a very, very high prevalence. It is controversial when to treat. And I didn't know, actually, it was also kind of controversial on how frequent you should screen. So here are the arguments for treating. There are lack of adverse side effects typically with thyroid hormone. It's a pretty safe medication overall. Um, there have been a couple studies that have looked at growth and found that um, there could be some benefits for treating. Another argument is you want to prevent the progression to um, severe hypothyroidism possibly can lead to better intellectual outcomes. And we definitely treat if the TSH is above 10, if they have a goiter or symptomatic or positive antibodies. So arguments to not treat. So typically, this is a transient elevation that occurs. If they have negative thyroid antibodies, then more than 70% will normalize. In this study here, they did not find any adverse effects on growth and development if you didn't treat, and the TSH resolved in 40% of the cases. So we screen every year 
Um, the UK and in Ireland, they do not screen every year, but they, they do um, get thyroid antibodies with each screen. And um, studies have shown that if you have positive TPO antibodies, you typically do end up becoming hypothyroid, but we're not sure when that happens. Um, so in, there, it's probably a good argument, actually, for getting TPO antibodies when you're screening your kids for, with Down syndrome. Okay. Yes. So if you don't treat that kid um, that has an elevated TSH with Down syndrome, do you repeat the levels at six months instead of waiting for another <coughs> year or? Yeah, I would probably follow it in six months. Okay. Does anyone know what the natural treatment is? Okay, we're going to talk about it. So one of your adolescent female patients has positive TPO antibodies, has been euthyroid for couple years. Today it looks like she's become hypothyroid. Her mom is on armor thyroid and she swears by it, says that it's the only thing that's made her feel better. And she um, wants you to start her daughter on armor thyroid. Would you start her on this or would you argue for starting her on synthetic <laughs> thyroid? Unnatural thyroid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, majority say no. Okay, so what is armor thyroid? It is dried up, ground up um, swine or porcine thyroid that's put into capsules. Um, it goes by armor thyroid or nature thyroid. And it was actually the treatment prior to us inventing synthetic um, levothyroxine. The ratio of T4 to T3 in desiccated thyroid extract is about 4 to 1, whereas in humans, the ratio is about 14 to 1. So that means you have a relative excess of T3, which can lead to supraphysiologic levels of T3. T3 also has a much shorter half-life than T4, and so um, there is concern for thyrotoxicosis and kind of fluctuations of T3 throughout the day. This study did, um, looked at, was in adults, it was 70 adults, and it compared using armor thyroid with levothyroxine. And the primary outcome was quality of life measures. And actually, more people preferred armor thyroid over levothyroxine. There was no difference in quality of life, however. And on average, there was a four-pound weight loss in the um, armor thyroid group. But remember, there's T3, and a lot of T3, so that is, should not be surprising. Did they check those levels in this study, Francis? I mean, were they all over-treated? They did not check them routinely. Very good question, Anne. You get fish. Um, um, so they did not, so this was not a safety study. This was a quality of life slash preference study. The American Thyroid Association um, has come out with a statement that says um, that they do not support the additional um, adding um, T3 because it does not seem to add additional benefit. And we do not have any long-term studies looking at what happens when you have this T4 to T3 ratio in armor thyroid and what happens when you have these excursions. And it's definitely not recommended if you're pregnant or if you've um, had thyroid cancer. So you have a seven-year-old with who's there for your annual checkup. She's had subpar weight gain for a year but normal growth velocity, and her TSH is 0.2. What does this mean? Ready? So it looks like the majority feel like she has sub, is it subclinical? Yeah, subclinical hyperthyroidism. I would argue that she has normal thyroid function. <laughs> So low TSH doesn't always mean hyperthyroidism, right? Um, it can be a normal variant if you have a normal free T4, or 
you're right, it could be subclinical hyperthyroidism. Um, when an assay is set up, it takes the general population and those who are presumed to not have thyroid disease, and then it makes a cutoff, right, two standard deviations. So if you're below two standard deviations or above, you're considered to have abnormal levels, even though you could actually have normal levels if you just happen to live outside of that range. But she does, she does warrant being followed in case she ends up developing overt hyperthyroidism. So this is a very common scenario for someone who's presenting who is hyperthyroid. Um, difficulty sleeping, inability to focus at school, polyuria, polydipsia even, um, polyphagia, loose stools. She's tachycardic on exam. Her skin feels moist and oily. Um, you don't note any tremors, but you think she might have some mild exophthalmos. So what labs would you get? So the majority say a TSH and free T4. Some of you get fancy and order a T3 also. So she has a free T4, a 4.79, and a very suppressed TSH. This is hyperthyroidism. And the most common cause is going to be Graves' disease or um, TSH receptor-stimulating antibodies, and that's often ordered as a TSI. If they're tachycardic, you can start a beta blocker in your office, either at tenolol or propranolol, before sending them over to endo. Please, 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 please call us if you get lab results that look like that. Sending an urgent referral is good, but sometimes we don't look at the referrals right away. And this is somebody that we would try to get in within a week, absolutely. So please call us and give us a heads up. We can also give you recommendations on starting the beta blocker during that time. Um, biggest fear is thyroid storm. So these are anticipatory um, guidelines that you would provide to the family before they can get in to see us. If they're having any fever, um, if they're feeling chest palpitations, anything that would be concerning, just have them go to their local emergency room. So there, there's medical management of graves, and there's definitive management of graves. The definitive management is surgery or radioactive iodine, and the medical management is typically with methimazole, and we typically start with methimazole. Um, these are some common side, not common. These are some of the side effects that we definitely make sure to review with the family when we start them on this medication. We can typically treat through a rash. If you have a patient with Graves who's on methimazole and they call your office and they say that my child has a fever, if they have sore throat and mouth lesions also, you need to get a CBC with diff. About a third of them will go into remission on their antithyroid medication, but the exophthalmos is not going to go away, just so you guys know. So when do we test for thyroid when do we test the thyroid? Um, so if they're just fatigued but they have no other real signs, you're probably not going to get much out of checking thyroid levels. If they can't focus at school but they have no other signs of hyperthyroidism, again, you're probably not going to get much out of checking thyroid levels. And I think these are the rest of these are probably pretty obvious. The essential test to get is definitely the TSH. Um, I, I, I get free T4s, but you guys can decide if you want to get that in the office or not. But the TSH is going to be the biggest um, screen for you guys. The thyroid is likely not a problem in obesity. Mild short stature with normal growth velocity. Failure to thrive. So if, if they're not gaining weight but their growth is normal, um, they're likely not hypothyroid or hyperthyroid. Um, hair falling out. So just diffuse hair falling out. I know people get their thyroid levels checked, but 
the only time I really see that happen, and this is what I tell families, is when I start them on levothyroxine or Synthroid, they can have a side effect of some hair falling out. So my sister has thyroid disease, but I don't have any other symptoms, but I want to be tested. So probably not helpful. Um, and hyperactivity without any other signs of hyperthyroidism. This is my house, by the way. <laughs> this is what my husband texted me. And this is what I texted him back. <laughs> All right. So what would be considered an urgent referral? A very elevated TSH and a low free T4, or what we just talked about with um, hyperthyroidism. We are always happy to consult and talk with you about um, any case. But these specific cases, I would say, please pick up the phone and, and call us. Time for questions? Yes, I did, because Deb told me, make sure you leave time for questions. <laughs> Dr. Chapman, Steve, keep Thank using this because they're listening. Another time we see some older thyroid function tests are in the context of depression, particularly with adolescents. I wonder what your thoughts are about the utility of that. I would say if it's depression, well, that's a good question because oftentimes the signs of depression are going to overlap with hypothyroidism, you know, fatigue, um, poor energy. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting thyroid levels when you have that case because you do have multiple signs that could indicate hypothyroidism, especially if there's a strong family history of autoimmune hypothyroidism. Um, I do caution the family that there are signs of depression and signs of hypothyroidism that overlap. And so getting these tests will help us rule out that there isn't an organic cause for why your child is feeling this way. But remember that all these signs do overlap. Kathy, Dr. Shepkin. Um, you mentioned the family history. Can you tell me what family history is important? Because when I ask a family history question for thyroid disease, everybody's sister and aunt and grandmother is on thyroid. <coughs> <laughs> and I don't know what's significant or not. Yeah. Um, so when I get that kind of history and they say thyroid disease, I probe further and I, I find out, you know, when were they diagnosed? Um, do you know if they have had autoantibodies checked? Do they have Hashimoto's thyroiditis? Why were they started on the thyroid medication? And usually that helps sort through... Um, sort through just like general thyroid disease versus um, like, oh, it looks like there is an autoimmune history in the family. Um, sometimes I ask them what thyroid hormone they're on, and sometimes I get the answer, oh, it's something that my naturopath, you know, prescribed for me, and then I start to think, okay, maybe then it's not autoimmune thyroid disease, or I probe further, what kind of testing did your naturopath do in order to put you on this medication? So it just... It's delving even farther into the history. Family history of other levels. Yeah. Charlene, Dr. Nat. Yeah, I that's that's kind of my suspicion. I think they, they probably get that extra feeling that makes them feel extra better. Um. <laughs> how do you get that? I mean, if, if you have someone swearing by it, how do you counsel them, right? I mean, you're not going to counsel me out of my coffee in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and sometimes, sometimes you can't. Um, you know, typically when I talk about safety and when I go over the T3, that changes their thoughts a little because I'm using the word safety concern. Um, but in, you know, some families, they really swear up and down that, you know, armor thyroid is the only thing that helped. The other thing that you can consider is, um, okay, so if you really, really, really feel like T3 is helping you, let me give you T3 separately. So not combined, but prescribe 
Synthroid, and then also prescribed Cytomel. However, in order for it to actually be effective, you need to give it three times a day. And so are they going to be doing that? No. You can also do, if you do it once a day, I mean, it's really going to be nothing. And Kathy again. Another question. <coughs> there were, I, I don't know if they were rumors or true studies that in certain um, patient populations, especially upper middle class families or families who are doing health food diets, who are no longer eating things that we want, processed food, they're getting the all organic, non-iodized salt, they don't salt their food, that there was an incidence in that population that was increasing of, of uh, goiter because of lack of iodine. And I don't know if it was rumor or innuendo or if it just showed up on Facebook one day. And um, you know, I'm not familiar with, the, with that. Carlin, do you know? Again, I have some families who like, they're like, oh, we don't do iodized salt. Like, yeah. okay. But, you know, it is. As have, yeah, I don't eat fish. I mean, have so, you. We live here, so there's no fish, yeah. and there's, you know, there's no yeah. other natural yeah. way to get iodine in your diet. But, I mean, have you ever tried to go on a low iodine diet, which we have to recommend for some people who are going, you know, to have radio uptake studies? Is it. It's hard. It's in a lot of foods. It's like it's ubiquitous. So it would be really hard to become iodine deficient um, unless you are specifically looking at the foods that have iodine in it and are not taking it. I see good attendance on the video conferencing. Any, any pressing questions from uh, our friends across the region? <laughs> I know it's technical, technologically challenging, so um, I, Dr. Lim Liberty has clearly mentioned that phone calls are welcome for urgent referrals, and we do also have a pretty good uptake thus far on the endocrine e-consults um, in the EDH system, which if Keen is on the video, you are now in the loop, I think, for the e-consults now that you're on EDH. Maybe they're not on the video conference because this is still week one for them in, with EDH, but they're week two. So... And one last question, Sholene. I don't know if every one of those boxes had Wonder Woman swag in it. Every one of those Amazon boxes. Where do you get the Amazon boxes? As I told my husband, were filled with things like paper towels, soap, dishwashing fluid. I mean, stuff that I just don't want to go to Target for, don't want to go to the grocery store for, and Amazon Prime and two-day delivery. So. So I opened them up and I showed him, these are things we need in the house. I'm not just going on a shopping spree. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, oh, I'm going to put the Swedish fish out by the box. For those in Lebanon, you have to return your clickers and get a Swedish fish. Thanks, Francis.